Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. The Peter Schiff Show. Today's podcast is sponsored by Ladder. Ladder makes it fast and easy to get affordable term life insurance without leaving home. Just go to ladderlife.com slash gold today to see if you're instantly approved. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Tommy John. Tommy John underwear moves with you thanks to breathable, lightweight, moisture-wicking fabric that has four times the stretch of competing brands. And right now, you can get 20% off on your first order at tommyjohn.com gold. See the site for details. The air continues to come out of the stock market bubble. All of the major stock market indexes finished Friday and the week solidly down what is driving the selling other than the fact that the markets are overpriced is the realization that interest rates are going to rise more than investors had anticipated in fact if you look at a lot of these big wall street firms they are ratcheting up the expected number of rate hikes for 2022 in fact the highest estimates i've now seen for rate hikes is 10 And that may sound like a big number. Oh my God, the Fed is going to hike rates 10 times in 2022. That's how serious they are about fighting inflation. These guys are really on the job. They are inflation fighters. They're going to go medieval on inflation. We're going to get 10 rate hikes and that is scaring the markets. And in fact, if you look at the yield curve, the yield curve is actually flattening because investors are actually starting to price in the recession that this hawkish Fed is going to cause by jacking up interest rates so much with these 10 rate hikes because the 10-year bond yield is factoring in a drop in rates that will follow all these hikes because all these hikes are going to cause a recession and that's going to result in the Fed reversing course and lowering rates. Now, here is the reality. And again, this has barely begun to set in on Wall Street. I mean, when more and more traders grasp this reality, there's a lot more downside in stocks. But more importantly, if the Fed acts to stop 
the carnage on Wall Street. There is way more downside in the U.S. dollar, way more upside in gold. And of course, bonds are going to get destroyed even if the nominal price doesn't fall because of Fed buying bonds. The real price will collapse much further. But 10 rate hikes is nothing. Assuming all 10 of these hikes are quarter point hikes, after 10 of them, Rates are at 2.5%. Big deal. Inflation is 7.5%. And of course, it's actually 15%. But let's just use the government's numbers. As phony as they are, we don't have to use the real inflation rate of 15% to prove this point. We can accept the government's distorted version of reality and just say it's 7.5%. Well, even if the Fed raises rates to 2.5%, you've got 5% negative real interest rates. You're not going to fight inflation with 5% negative rates. There is no history that shows this. I mean, it's impossible. It contradicts any type of economic school of thought that you want to put forth. And in fact, if the Federal Reserve raises interest rates 10 times and each one of those hikes is 25 basis points, by the time they get to 2.5%, real yields will be a lot lower then minus five, because by the time the Fed gets rates to two and a half percent, the CPI will be at least 10%, maybe more. So the Fed will actually be further behind the curve when it gets to two and a half percent than it is right now at zero. It's because moving so slowly allows inflation to accelerate because the entire time the Fed is hiking rates, it is still pursuing an expansionary monetary policy. But the real risk that the markets still don't get is even if 10 rate hikes push the U.S. economy into recession, and they probably will, I think the market is getting that right. That's not going to bring down long-term interest rates because the reason that people think the Fed will be able to fight inflation with these small rate hikes is because they realize correctly that even small rate hikes are too large for the economy to bear because we have so much debt. So what the bond market is counting on is the recession doing the job for the Fed, meaning that the Fed won't fight inflation with tight money, but simply making money less loose will be enough to tip the economy into recession and the recession will fight inflation because the conventional wisdom is if we have a recession, that is going to reduce demand and that is going to bring down the rate of inflation. So that's what the markets are counting on. It's not the Fed that's going to fight inflation. It's going to be the recession. But the Fed is going to cause the recession with these rate hikes. And that's what they're all referring to as a policy mistake because they're saying, hey, the Fed is going to hike too much and cause a recession. The recession is not the mistake. The recession is the cure for the mistake. The mistakes were made a long time ago. The Fed continues to make mistakes in raising rates too slowly, not because faster rate hikes will cause a recession, but because they're trying to delay the recession because the recession is the cure. But the problem is the economy is so sick, we can't survive the cure. We survived it in 1980 when Reagan and Volcker force-fed that bitter-tasting medicine down the throat of the economy, and we had 20% interest rates. We were able to survive that, and we had some relative prosperity at the back end, but we can't do it now. I mean, 
We could, in theory, in the long run, but given the political realities that will intervene in the short run, there is no way it's going to happen. So what is going to happen then when the economy tips into recession? Inflation is going to get worse, not better. That genie is already out of the bottle. And just because demand is going to go down in America doesn't mean it's going to go down worldwide. And what we all should know by now that is also a key factor in the supply and demand equation is supply. Supply is also going to go down. In particular, domestic supply is going to go down. Now, I was reading this article about the fracking industry and with oil prices above $90 a barrel and a lot of these key companies are not increasing production. They're just going to enjoy a better return on their investment while they can. And the reason is they don't want to get burned again. They don't want to take the risk because they lost a lot of money. Last time oil prices were $90, $100 a barrel because they did invest in more drilling and then the price fell out and they lost a ton of money. And they're not going to risk making that mistake again. So we're not going to get this big increase in domestic supply of oil, even though the price of oil is going up. But the key point I want to make is that oil can be exported. And even if demand for oil in the U.S. goes down as the price goes up, demand can go up outside the United States and more U.S. oil will end up being exported and there'll be even less supplies available for domestic consumption because Americans compete with people all around the world. And the same thing applies to all of our imports. We're running these record imports, but if the dollar tanks, which is what will happen, because if the Fed has to do an about face, if, as I believe is going to happen, the inflation rate is still going to be high. I mean, it could be higher than it is right now, or maybe it'll be a little lower, but it'll definitely be high when the Fed pivots back to more loose instead of less loose, when the Fed has to start taking back whatever rate hikes it managed to get in, when the Fed has to go back to QE, the bottom is going to drop out of the dollar and that's going to drive the cost of imports through the roof. But what's going to happen is as the dollar dumps, that means other currencies are going up and now consumers in other countries can outbid Americans for a lot of the products that were being shipped to America. So now those products aren't going to come to America. They're going to stay outside. Consumers in other countries will buy them. And that restricts the supply of goods coming into America. Meanwhile, as the dollar tanks, American goods are going to become cheaper for foreign consumers to buy. And so our exports will pick up when the dollar really tanks. So fewer goods are going to be coming in more goods are going to be going out. So the domestic supply of goods is going to be shrinking. And even if demand is shrinking to buy those goods because Americans have less money, there's also going to be less stuff. And what matters is the relative relationship between demand and supply. So if demand goes down, but supply goes down more, price can still go up in that environment. And that is what's going to happen. That is stagflation. But the other problem is the recession itself fuels more inflationary monetary and fiscal policy. Because how does the government fight recession? Well, they do exactly what they're doing now to fight inflation, except more of it. They fight recession with expansionary monetary policy and expansionary fiscal policy. But that makes inflation worse. 
So if you have an inflationary recession, if you're in stagflation and you resort to the classical Keynesian remedies for recession, you are at the same time making the inflation worse. But if the recession is being caused by inflation, what you're doing to make the recession better actually makes the recession even worse by making the inflation problem worse. And that is where we're headed. In fact, look at a policy that is already being floated around regarding gasoline by the Democrats, by the president. They're talking about a gas tax holiday. And if this is passed, the federal gas tax, which amounts to 18.3 cents per gallon, will be suspended until the end of the year, which of course will take us through the election day for the midterm. So it's kind of like a bribe for the voters. Hey, the Democrats want to make your gas prices lower. So we're going to give you this gas tax holiday. And what the government is also trying to do is provide some relief from higher gas prices. Now, of course, why are gas prices high? Because the government, the government is creating all the inflation that is driving gas prices up. Plus you have a energy policy that is driving gas prices up. In fact, what's so hypocritical is you have all these Democrats that are talking about climate change and trying to promote alternative sources of energy. Well, the best way to promote that is higher oil prices, because if there's higher oil prices, there'll be less demand for oil. And so we'll develop alternative sources. So if you really believe this Green New Deal, you shouldn't be talking about high gas prices as if they're a problem. They're part of your solution. In fact, if we actually passed the Green New Deal, which a lot of these people claim they want, gas prices will be going up a lot more than they already have. And in fact, a lot of the Democrats who are in favor of the Green New Deal are also in favor of suspending the federal gasoline tax. But I want to get into the economics of it rather than the hypocrisy of it, because that's more important for this podcast. So the government looks at this problem of rising gas prices, and they don't understand that The reason gas prices are rising is because the value of money is falling. They're creating more dollars. And so you need more dollars to buy more gas. You need more dollars to buy more everything. And that's going to continue. So what the government wants to do, instead of getting to the root cause of the problem, they want to just try to cover up one of the symptoms, which is gas prices going up. But just like everything the government does, this will backfire and actually result in higher, not lower, gas prices, even without the federal gas tax, which of course will eventually come back. And when it comes back, the price of gas will be a lot higher than it was when they suspended it. So here are the economic dynamics involved. So let's say the government eliminates this gas tax or suspends it for the year. That means the government is gonna lose revenue because the government has been collecting revenue from the gas tax. The government is not talking about cutting spending in other areas so that it can afford to do without that revenue. No, the government is just going to run bigger deficits. So this policy is let's run larger deficits. Let's have a stimulative tax cut because that's what it is, right? The government is cutting taxes to stimulate the economy. But wait a minute, the problem is inflation. Why do they want another economic stimulus when we're already overheated, right? According to Keynes, you're cutting taxes when you should be raising taxes. They should be increasing the federal gas tax, right? To cool off the economy. Instead, they want to heat it up when according to them, it's already overheated. They want to have a bigger deficit because if the government is not going to collect this revenue from 
consumers when they buy gas, where's it going to collect it? Well, for now, it's going to ask the Federal Reserve to print it, right? They're going to borrow more money, but the Fed is saying, well, we want to print less money. Well, now the government is going to increase the deficits, putting more pressure on the Fed to monetize it. Now, if the Fed doesn't want to do it, it just means the U.S. government has to borrow more money, which means interest rates have to be higher on the margin to accommodate for the fact that the government is now trying to borrow more. It's all supply and demand. So consumers are going to pay one way. They're going to pay for this gas tax holiday through higher inflation or through higher interest rates. But the irony of it is they're concerned about inflation. And so they want to run bigger deficits and force the Fed to print more money so that the inflation problem that they're concerned about actually gets worse. But there's an even bigger problem than that. And again, it's the pesky supply and demand again. One of the positive market mechanisms to reduce demand is increasing price. So if oil prices are going up, one of the ways to reduce how much they're going up is to reduce the demand for oil. And how does the market do that? Well, through higher prices. As prices go up and up, marginal buyers back away from the market. And people try to figure out ways to economize and use less oil, right? So now demand goes down. And of course, when you have higher prices, that's also a signal to producers to produce more. Although I already said American producers aren't going to produce more because they got burned so much doing that last time. So we're not going to get a big increase in production. So what we need to get is a reduction in demand and higher prices are helping to do that. But now if the government reduces the oil price by 18.3 cents a gallon, demand for oil among consumers will be higher than it would have been absent that gas tax holiday. In fact, obviously what will happen is as you get very close to the period where the gas tax is going to come back, a lot of gas stations are going to try to rush up and buy as much gas as they can store, knowing that if we don't buy it now, it's about to get 18.3 cents a gallon more expensive. So you are going to get a lot of demand rushing into the market right before the holiday is set to expire. But during the entire period that it's in effect, demand on the margin will be higher than it otherwise might have been had the tax been left in place. So the government is worried about rising gas prices. So what does their policy do? It creates additional demand for gas, which means the prices will be even higher. So this is an example of government misguided policy, but that is what we're going to get. More of this stimulative policy, both monetary and fiscal policy, as soon as the economy is obviously breaking. And it is. I mean, look at the data we got on unemployment claims on Thursday. The expectation was for 224,000 new claims, and that would have followed 223,000 in the previous week. Well, they revised up that week from 223 to 225. Not that much of a big deal, just 2,000 more. But the recent week, we ended up with 248,000 additional claims for unemployment benefits. That's a 23,000 claim increase over that upwardly revised 225 from the prior week. So this is going in the wrong direction. And I think unemployment is going to continue to rise because real consumer spending is going to fall. But as I've said before on this podcast, there are a lot of layoffs coming in the sector of the economy that has been the biggest bubble 
the biggest beneficiary of the misallocation of capital. You have all of these Americans who are employed by money-losing companies. And the only reason the money-losing companies were able to pay them was because they could sell stock. And the only reason they could sell stock is because investors wanted to buy it. And why did they want to buy it? Because the price was going up and they thought they could get rich. Well, now that the price is collapsing and the people who thought they could get rich are going broke, they're not going to buy any more stock. So the lifeline for these companies is cut off and now they have to start cutting back. They have to start reducing their cash burn, which means they're going to reduce their headcount. So a lot of layoffs, we're going to have rising unemployment, but prices are going to continue to rise. In fact, we still have so much pent-up inflation in the pipeline that is yet to show up. And in fact, even if the Fed were fighting inflation today, we wouldn't even see the results for another couple of years because we're still dealing with the consequences of the inflation they created in the past that haven't even caught up to us yet. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A lot of people who are buying life insurance make the mistake of buying whole life. Most people don't need insurance for the whole of life. They just need to insure the people who depend on them during a certain fixed time period of their lives. When your children grow up and they're on their own, they no longer depend on you. But when they do, the important thing is to get the biggest bang for your buck and buy the biggest death benefit you can for the smallest amount of premium. And that's when Ladder Life comes in. It's 100% digital when you apply for $3 million in coverage or less. There are no doctors, no needles, and no paperwork. And to apply, all you need is a phone or a laptop and a few minutes to spare. Ladder smart algorithms work in real time, so you'll find out instantly if you're approved. And if you prefer to talk to someone, they have a team of licensed agents standing by. And by the way, they don't work on commission, so they'll help you without trying to upsell you. There are no hidden fees, and you can cancel at any time. And if you change your mind within the first 30 days, you can cancel and get a full refund. Ladder policies are issued by insurers with long proven histories of paying claims. Since life insurance costs more as you get older, now's the best time to cross it off your list. Just go to ladderlife.com gold today to see if you're instantly approved. That's ladderlife, L-A-D-D-E-R, life.com gold to see if you're instantly approved. So lower stock prices means fewer jobs, but it also means less wealth because a lot of Americans have a lot of their wealth tied up in the stock market, probably more so than ever before. 
although some of that wealth may have been in cryptocurrencies, but you've got the same problem because stocks and cryptocurrencies are all going down and whatever wealth a lot of Americans believe they had is evaporating before their eyes. And if they were spending based on the inflated values of their wealth, well, as those bubbles deflate, they're going to have to adjust their spending accordingly. In fact, let's look at the actual carnage on the week in the stock market. The Dow Jones was down 1.9% on the week, and it's now 7.8% below its record high, getting closer to a official correction. S&P 500 wasn't down quite as much on the week, just 1.6%, but it is now down 9.8% from its high. So it's on the cusp of a correction. The NASDAQ though, well beyond correction territory, It was down 1.6% on the week as well, but it's now down 16% from its high. In fact, it's now closer to an official bear market than correction. Remember, bear market is down 20%. Correction is down 10%. Russell 2000 actually held up better on the week than the other averages. It was only down 1%, but that index is closest to the bear market. It is down 18% from its high. But again, Beneath the surface, the rotation in the value continues. Look at my value fund, your Pacific value fund. It gained another 1% on the week. Now, I mean, 1% is not a huge gain, but when you look at it in context to what's going on, when you've got the S&P down 1.6%, the Dow down 1.9%, yet this value fund up 1%, that really shows you what is going on in the markets. The problem is most people are too blind to read the writing on the wall. And speaking about the blind, the leader of the blind, the blindest one of all, Kathy Wood, look at her ARK Innovation Fund bloodbath on the week, down 10%. That ETF is now at a new 52-week low. In fact, the ARK Innovation Fund is now 58% below its high, and there's no end in sight. Closely correlated with the ARK Fund is the Bitcoin Grayscale Trust, GBTC. That ended down 6.7% on the week, and it's 53% from its record high. By the way, Bitcoin itself, as I am recording this podcast on Saturday morning here in Puerto Rico, Bitcoin is back below 40,000. It's about 39,800. Interestingly enough, A year ago today, Bitcoin was about 56,000. So we now are at a point where year over year, the price of Bitcoin is now down and not just down, down big. It's down about 30%. Now, a lot of that has to do with the fact that we had a big spike in Bitcoin early in 2021 and that helped set the stage for the biggest dump in crypto history because the big pump in early 2021 is what allowed all the Bitcoin whales and the insiders who got in early to sell a lot of their coins in 2022. But a lot of these Bitcoin guys who want to make a big deal and say, hey, gold is not a good inflation hedge. Gold doesn't keep up with inflation. Well, what do you call Bitcoin? If year over year, it's down 30%. Year over year, the CPI is up 7.5%. Clearly, Bitcoin is not an inflation hedge either. If you want to judge Bitcoin using the same standards that Bitcoiners have been using to judge gold. And by the way, Turning to gold, gold prices rose $33 on the week, 
up 1.9%, pretty much the opposite of the Dow. Dow down 1.9%, gold up 1.9%. That means priced in gold, the Dow dropped 3.8%. That really puts into perspective the degree of the decline because that's measuring the Dow in real money as opposed to fiat money. And in fact, gold prices traded above 1,900. That's the first time they've done that since June of 2021. We closed right below that benchmark. 1899.20 is where gold prices settled on the week. And gold is still not up as much as inflation year over year, but it is up 6% year over year. That's a lot better than being down 30% like Bitcoin. And I think within the next week or two, gold prices will then be up more than the inflation rate over a year-over-year time period because there is a lot of upside in the price of gold. In fact, gold traded below 1800 just a week or so ago. And I remember on my podcast that day, I said, I don't think it's going much lower. 1800 is support. Any opportunity to buy below 1800 would be taken by the markets. And in fact, it went straight up from there. And now we're about 1900. But there is clear sailing for the price of gold. And what is particularly interesting about the gold rally this week, and don't dismiss it and say it's all about the fact that Putin's about to invade the Ukraine. That's the noise in the gold market. The real music that the markets are dancing to is inflation. And the fact that you had all of these expectations ratcheted up for the number of rate hikes this week, the fact that you now have, as I said, some investment houses predicting 10 rate hikes, yet the price of gold went up anyway. So the markets are slowly coming to terms with this reality. These rate hikes are not going to hurt gold. And that's because these rate hikes are not gonna cool inflation. And so we have a huge problem on our hands and the solution for investors is only gold. In fact, I hear a lot of people talking about the benefits of cash. Even though cash has no yield, a lot of people on Wall Street are touting cash for its optionality. Because if you have cash, that gives you the option of buying stocks if they get cheaper. So in other words, it's this dry powder. So don't think about cash in terms of the yield because you're not going to get any. Just think of it as giving you some optionality because you could take that cash if the markets tank and now you can benefit from the collapse, you can buy stocks cheap. Well, I got a better idea. Instead of cash, use gold because inflation is 7.5%. Again, it's 15, but let's just use the government numbers. 7.5%, if you stay in cash, waiting to buy bargains in the stock market, you're losing 7.5% while you wait. I mean, if you wait all year, you've lost 7.5% of your purchasing power. Instead of keeping your dry powder in cash, where it's actually getting pretty wet, how about if you store it in gold? That is a much better place to be if you don't want to be in stocks because you have the same optionality in gold. You can use your gold to buy stocks. And in fact, I think it gives you greater optionality because as stock prices are going down, gold prices are going to be going up at a minimum to offset that 7.5% inflation. Now, is it possible that the price of gold could go down with stocks? It is possible, but it's likely that if that happens, stock prices will go down a lot more than gold prices. So you still have the benefit of being able to use your gold to buy stocks 
and be ahead of the game if stocks drop more than your goal. Now, yes, if you own cash, your cash can't drop at all. So in that respect, you could say, well, cash is a little bit better because there's no chance that cash is going to go down. And there is some chance that gold is going to go down, which is true, but it won't go down as much as stocks. But on the flip side, there is no chance that cash will go up. There is a very good chance that gold will go up. In fact, it's highly probable that gold will go up. So if you view the whole thing in its entirety, downside risk, upside potential, if you don't want to be in stocks because you think stocks are overpriced and you want some dry powder so that you can take advantage of lower stock prices in the future, what's the better choice, cash or gold? Gold wins hands down. I mean, maybe if we had a high interest rate environment, like in 1980, if you can get 14% on your cash or 20% on your cash, hey, maybe cash is better than gold. But when you're getting 0% on your cash and you have zero upside then on your cash and you can buy gold this cheap, clearly that's where all the optionality is. So all these people that are touting cash as a defensive play to give you optionality to buy cheaper stocks should be touting gold instead because the real risk of holding cash is that we have hyperinflation and then stock prices actually go up. If the government interferes, if the Fed interferes to reflate this bubble and you're caught holding a bunch of cash, you're going to lose on your cash because cash will lose more value than stocks. But if you own gold and that happens, then you're fine because stock prices will go up in that situation, but gold prices will go up even more. And then you still have the benefit of being able to buy cheap stocks because they're going to be cheap in terms of gold. They won't be cheap in terms of paper dollars, which are going to get even cheaper, but they will be cheaper in terms of real money. You know, when it comes to men's underwear, Tommy John's hammock pouch underwear is the full package deal. And when you're wearing Tommy John's hammock pouch underwear, you are that much more comfortable so you can do everything a little bit better. With dozens of comfort innovations, once you've tried Tommy John underwear, you're never going back. With innovations like an air mesh interior hammock and moisture wick fabric with four times the stretch of competing brands, plus their legs never ride up, and Tommy John underwear comes with a non-rolling waistband for that perfect fit. That's why Tommy John's doesn't have customers, they have fanatics. Fanatics that call Tommy John's hammock pouch one of life's greatest inventions. In fact, the greatest invention of all is that quick-release horizontal fly. And with over 17 million pairs sold, men across America love their Tommy John's underwear. Shipping and returns are free because every pair is backed by Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear, or it's free, guarantee. And right now, you can get 20% off your first order at tommyjohn.com slash gold. That's 20% off loungewear and underwear at tommyjohn.com slash gold. That's tommyjohn.com slash gold. See the site for details. But I want to circle back and talk a little bit more about the ARK Innovation ETF and Kathy Wood in particular, because I've been very critical of Kathy Wood. It didn't start when her fund collapsed. And I was critical of her when she was the belle of the ball, the talk of the town, when everybody was singing her praises. I said that she had no idea what she was doing. She just was in the right place at the right time. She bought the most overvalued crap before a lot of other people bought the same overvalued crap. So the old saying about don't confuse brains with a bull market, well, 
it's even more important that you don't confuse brains with a bubble. And that's what everybody has done. But Kathy Wood, right at the epicenter of that bubble, believes all the hype, believes her own bullshit. She believes all the presses about how great she is. And so it all feeds her ego and she believes all those clippings and it is so distorted her sense of reality. And so even now, as she is staring reality in the face, she still doesn't recognize it. She still expects these stocks that she owned, some of them that are down 70, 80%, she still believes they're gonna make new highs. She is living in a fantasy land. And the most frustrating part about this is the attention that she still gets in the media, the platform that she still has. She's on like CNBC constantly, all week. She's always there and they let her tout her funds. Even as the price keeps crashing, she's on that network urging people not to sell, urging people to buy, and her followers are following her lead. Like I said, it's the blind leading the blind. Now, yes, when she's being interviewed, they do question her a little bit, but they don't really press her. They throw her softballs, not hardballs, and they accept her rationalization for what's going on. Some of the things that she's been saying that are just utter nonsense, one of her contentions is that because her fund is down so much, right, it's down 50%, she now believes that she is a deep value fund investor, that the ARK Innovation Fund is now a deep value. Like it's not just a value fund, it's deep value, meaning her stocks are way undervalued. That's not even close to being true. In fact, the opposite is true. Her stocks are more overvalued now than they were when they were double the price. Now, how is that? Well, because the fundamentals have changed. First of all, the momentum has changed. When the fund was double the price, it had a lot of positive momentum and that positive momentum had some value. Well, now it has negative momentum. Well, that subtracts value. When stocks are going up, there might be some type of expectation built into the price that they're gonna keep going up. But when they're crashing, how are you gonna build that expectation in? In fact, if anything, the expectation is the trend is your friend and it's gonna continue. And in this case, the trend is your enemy if you're Kathy Wood. So on a pure momentum basis, her fund is less valuable and her stocks. But think about the interest rate environment. Think about the inflation environment. Her stocks were in favor in a low rate, low inflation environment. When you have higher rates and higher inflation, that means that growth stocks, by definition, become less valuable because when you are valuing a growth stock, you are trying to value income streams in the distant future and then discount them to the present. And an important factor in valuing those future streams of income is the interest rate that you're using to discount them to the present. And interest rates are going up. So the present value, the discounted value of those future cash flows has diminished. Kathy Wood doesn't understand what's going on. Her stocks are even more overpriced now based on the change in the fundamentals than they were before they dropped. So there is a long way to go before these stocks become fairly valued, let alone highly discounted valuations. She is living in a fantasy land. Another point that Kathy Wood made was that investors are making 
one of the greatest misallocations of capital in the history of mankind. Now, she's actually kind of right there, but for the wrong reasons. The misallocation that she's referring to is not the misallocation that's happening. You see, Kathy Wood thinks the mistake that people are making is not buying the stocks that she owns because they're so undervalued and investors are just blind to what she can clearly see. She's the one that's blind. The point that she's trying to make is that investors who are looking at the past are making a mistake. That if you're buying stocks just because they've made profits in the past, you shouldn't buy them with the expectation that they'll continue to deliver profits in the future, right? What she's saying is these innovative companies that she's buying are going to disrupt the traditional companies and take their market share and take their profits. And that the mistake is that people aren't buying these disruptive stocks in the future. And she actually said, and I'm not making this up because she was talking about the indexes. And in part, I agree with her. I don't like the indexes either, but not for the reason she does. I mean, I think too many people have also indexed. There's no value there. I like picking individual stocks that are outside the index that truly represent value because a lot of the stocks in the indexes are overpriced based on their inclusion in that index and how many people have been buying them based on the fact that that index has been rising. But what she was saying was that the problem with the indexes is you've got too many of these old school companies that are making profits now, that have made profits in the past. And so people are relying on that as some type of expectation for profits in the future. And what they don't realize is those profits are going to go away because her companies are going to disrupt them. And she said, quote, these benchmarks are where the risk is, not in her portfolio, not in the ARC fund. How can she say, I don't even know how the SEC would allow her to make these statements publicly, that there is risk in the S&P 500, but not in her portfolios. Her portfolios are loaded up with risk. Yes, there's innovation. But what Kathy Wood doesn't seem to understand is how difficult it is to see the future. I mean, she thinks she's clairvoyant, right? Again, she believes her own press lines. She has a crystal ball. She knows what companies are going to win. You don't. I mean, let's say there's a hundred companies that are potentially going to disrupt the market. Maybe only one of them does. Maybe 99% of them go to zero. Kathy Wood doesn't know which of those hundreds are going to succeed. She just thinks they're all going to do it. And maybe she thinks, well, I'm just diversified. Maybe none of the ones that she picked will succeed. There is huge risk in what she's doing. She's acting as if it's easy. Oh yeah, just buy some disruptive companies. You know, there are hundreds of automobile companies that were around and almost all of them went bankrupt. So you could have had a nice portfolio of auto stocks, very innovative, automobiles, yeah, they were the future. They replaced the horse and buggy. But a lot of people who invested in auto companies got killed because they overpaid. They thought certain companies would succeed and they were wrong. They went to zero. Go back to the dot-com days. How many dot-com companies failed? Far more than the ones that succeeded. A lot of people got wiped out. Even the people that might have had Amazon in their portfolio might have got wiped out because Amazon was just one stock. And maybe they had to sell their Amazon to cover their losses and all the other stocks. And by the way, Amazon went down 80 or 90% too. It's just that a lot of other stocks went down 100%. So people got burned. You know, it's ironic that Kathy Wood 
is saying that investors are too afraid. They're too timid because of the dot-com bubble or the financial crisis. They've been scared out of taking these risks. You know what? Maybe they learned something from those mistakes, something that Kathy Wood hasn't done. They actually learned a lesson. Kathy is still oblivious to that lesson. She thinks that what happened with the dot-coms or what happened in 2008, it's never going to happen again. She doesn't have to worry about it. There's no risk in her stocks. This is a very dangerous perspective. Kathy Wood is not the person that you want managing your portfolio. I said this when her funds were on the highs, and I'm saying it again now. Even though they're more than 50% off their highs, they are going a lot lower. But what may be more significant than how clueless Kathy Wood is or that CNBC brings her on so often and gives her a platform to spew all this nonsense, but why CNBC feels that it's so important to constantly bring her on and give her that platform. And I think it's because CNBC is playing to their audience because most of the CNBC viewers own a lot of the same stocks that Kathy Wood owns in her funds. In fact, a lot of their viewers probably own her fund because she's been on so long touting it. And she's basically like the messiah of all of these faithful CNBC viewers. And so they bring her on so that she can preach to the faithful and give them hope. The goal is for the people who own these stocks not to give up hope, not to jump off of a sinking ship. But of course, that's exactly what they should do. The ship is sinking. Why go down with it? That's exactly what Kathy Wood is advising people to do. But the significance here is that the typical American, and not just the ones that watch CNBC, but the ones that don't, but that own stock, they own the same type of stock that Kathy Wood owns. I mean, she made the same mistake that everybody else made, the mistake that people that don't manage funds make. And she just bought momentum. She has no idea what she's doing. She's just like those meme stock investors. They bought ticker symbols that were going up without any regard to the actual valuation of the companies that they were buying. And so when you just look at the indexes, and as I mentioned earlier, Right, the Dow is down 7.8% from its high. S&P 9.8%. Even the Nasdaq off 16% or the Russell 2000 off 18%. The average American investor is down way more than that on their portfolio because the average American's portfolio looks a lot like the Kathy Wood portfolio. In fact, it may even look worse. So I would say that most Americans who have stock portfolios are probably down about 50% from where they were at their peak. So they've had their financial net worth cut in half. And you know what? It's going a lot lower. And as I've said before, not only are sinking stock prices going to cause people to lose their jobs because the companies whose stock prices are sinking no longer have access to cash to pay their salaries. And not only is this going to create a reverse wealth effect for Americans who have jobs and stock market portfolios, and they're going to spend less, but there are a lot of Americans that have no jobs. They've been relying 100% on their stock portfolios. Well, when they no longer have a stock portfolio to rely on, well, now they're going to have to be back in the labor force. And so that's going to increase the unemployment rate as all these stock traders rejoin the labor force and are now part of the official statistics. But you know, this Kathy Wood phenomena where CNBC 
brings Kathy Wood on because they know she's what their audience wants to hear because their audience is full of people that own these stocks and they want to hear from their Messiah. They want to be reassured that everything's going to be okay if they just hold and hope. The same reason they do that is the same reason that they bring on all these crypto bulls to come on constantly and tout crypto because I think CNBC has cultivated a crypto audience. And so there is a viewer base that owns cryptocurrencies in many cases in large part because of all the constant pumping on CNBC. So they have to constantly bring on more crypto messiahs to preach the gospel and get the faithful to stay on board with these pie-in-the-sky price forecasts, $100,000 Bitcoin, $200,000 Bitcoin, $1 million Bitcoin, right? While everything is imploding, they're not telling their audience what they need to hear. They're telling their audience what they want to hear. And in the process, they are doing an incredible disservice. There's very little coverage of what's going on in the value stock arena. Very little coverage of what's going on outside the United States. Practically no coverage of what's going on with gold or gold stocks. Barely even mentioned. Even though gold goes above 1900, it's an afterthought to the extent that it's even mentioned. No coverage really of the gold stocks. They're not bringing on portfolio managers who have these types of stocks in their portfolio. I mean, clearly they're not bringing me on, but there's probably some other people that they could bring on. I mean, there's not a lot of them, but they could start to find, hey, who are these value managers and who's getting it right? No, they're constantly bringing up the guys that are getting it wrong. Now, it looked like they were getting it right for a while as air was coming into the bubble, right? Everybody thought Kathy Wood was a genius when other fools were buying the same stocks that she did. But now that we've run out of fools and the price is going down, I mean, she's going to be the last fool left. She's going to be screaming from the rooftops as the house that she's standing on is on fire, that everything is great, that my stocks are going to make new highs, that everybody else is wrong, that this is the greatest misallocation in history. To me, this is just another great contrarian indicator that the mainstream is still wedded to what worked in the past. They have no idea the significance of what has changed. They don't even appreciate that anything has changed. It's going to take a much bigger move before it occurs to a more significant minority of the investors, let alone the majority. I mean, the majority aren't going to get this right for a long time. In fact, the majority will probably never get it right. But a larger percentage of the minority will figure it out. And at some point, it'll be a critical mass of a minority that figures this out. And then the moves are going to be much greater when it comes to the relative outperformance of dividend and value paying stocks. And you're going to see a much bigger move up in gold. We're going to see a crack in the dollar. And the bond market is going to go down with it when these bond investors finally realize that recession isn't a guaranteed cure for inflation. In fact, it's very likely that recession makes inflation worse because it causes the government to pursue even more inflationary policies than it pursues in environments of stronger growth. And when it grasps the dynamic that I mentioned earlier about the diminution of supply affecting price during a recession and It's not just stocks that are decoupling. It's going to be the economies. You're going to see the global economy, particularly the emerging markets, completely decouple from what's happening in the United States. You're going to see real growth 
outside the United States at the same time that you see recession inside the United States, especially when you adjust prices for the decline in the U.S. dollar. And this is the much bigger trend that so many people fail to appreciate, and they fail to appreciate it at their own peril because it has significant negative implications for their portfolios, but their standard of living in the future. A lot of people have been building retirement portfolios. They're planning on retiring on portfolios of U.S. stocks and bonds. They're going to have to rethink those plans because they're not going to retire. They're going to be working. In fact, a lot of people who are retired now are going to have to figure out what they're going to do because they're not going to be able to stay retired because the cost of living is going to rise dramatically in relation to their income potential from their portfolios. And they're not going to be able to live off of those investments. And whatever they get from the government in the form of Social Security or other benefits will be wholly inadequate given the degree to which prices are going up. Because remember, even those cost of living increases are pegged to a fake cost of living. They're not going to come close to keeping people whole to what's happening to the actual cost of living. So people have to take control of those portfolios now. People have got to make the adjustments that I've been suggesting. And sure, I've been suggesting them too early, but you know what? The people that took my advice too early, at least they're positioned properly now. The people who have never taken my advice, they have a short window of time to scramble to do it. I have no idea. I mean, we are literally living on borrowed time. The bottom could drop out of the dollar at any minute. I mean, it's still up in the stratosphere compared to where it's going to go, but there's going to be an aha moment. An emperor has no clothes you know, moment where a light bulb goes off and all of a sudden people can see what they've been blind to. And then when you can see the light, the markets are going to move in a much faster way. And so before that happens, because you can't do anything after, you got to do it before. And because you don't know when it's going to happen, you got to assume it's tomorrow and take action today. And finally, I want to suggest that the people who do listen to this podcast try to do what you can to encourage other people to listen to because so many people are getting their information from the conventional media. So many investors are watching things like CNBC and getting exposed to Kathy Wood nonstop and all of her craziness. More people need to have exposure to what I'm saying. More people have to tune out all that noise and start listening to the truth, the truth that I'm telling on this podcast. And so I know people are listening. They enjoy the content. You've got to get your friends to also listen, recommend that they start listening to The Peter Schiff Show. I know my social media followers are picking up. My YouTube channel, I've got 485,000 subscribers now. If you're listening to this podcast and you're not one of those subscribers, you should subscribe. It'd really be nice to see that number hit 500,000, get half a million subscribers. Of course, then I'm going to want to have a million subscribers. I should have a million. I should have more than a million. But I think if my audience helps spread the word, I can. And by the way, I have another YouTube channel, Shift Clips. I only have 9,850 or so subscribers. That's unfortunate. That's 2% of my YouTube subscribers to my main channel have subscribed to Shift Clips. I started that channel so I can take some of my podcasts and some of my appearances and make short little clips that a lot of people might have an interest in listening to. Some people, if they see a podcast and it's you know an hour long, they have no time for it. But if there's a clip 
that's three or four minutes long, some people might listen to it. And if people listen to my clips, they may eventually listen to the entire podcast. So we're putting a lot of content out there. I would put more content out there if more people were seeing these clips. But I need more subscribers in order to get those YouTube algorithms to put these clips higher up so more people might notice them. So even if you're not going to watch the clips yourself because you're like, hey, why do I need the clips? I heard the whole podcast, I don't need a clip. Although sometimes we put up some unique content on those clips that you're not gonna hear or see on my main YouTube channel, but sign up anyway. Anybody who is listening to this podcast, go at the end of the podcast and at a minimum, subscribe to the shift clips. So not only will you get a notification when I put up a new clip, but I got to get more action on that channel. I got to get more views on those clips so that more people who don't know who I am might stumble across those clips and watch one. And then once they watch one, they may watch another. And once they watch those, well, that might bring them over to the overall podcast and more people will start hearing the truth instead of a bunch of lies. You know, also Instagram, that is a newer platform for me. I've been doing it for a little over a year. I have 98,300 subscribers. I am putting out a lot of content on my Instagram page. There's a lot of stuff there. So if you haven't started following me on Instagram, start doing it. In fact, I want to set a goal of 100,000 Instagram followers and challenge all the listeners to this podcast to help me reach that goal. I got a lot of followers on other social media platforms. They should follow me on Instagram as well. In fact, a lot of people who followed me on Instagram started following my wife. And, you know, if you're looking for some candid or kind of personal stuff, I mean, I don't really post anything on my own Instagram page. The only page I have is my professional page where I put all this stuff about what I'm doing. But there is some personal stuff up there. You just got to do a little research and figure out what her page is. But I noticed and she's told me that she's got some of the people who follow me there that are following her. Facebook, I have about 139,000 followers there. You know, it just shows you too. I mean, compared to some of my other platforms, Facebook is really dropping off. I used to have a lot more people follow me on Facebook relative to how many people followed me on other platforms. And Facebook has kind of been on the back burner. And you can obviously tell that by looking at their stock price. But if you're not following me on Facebook, you know, you might as well add yourself to the 139,000. So far, the platform where I have the most followers is Twitter. I have 656,000 Twitter followers right now. If you are not among them, go to Twitter and follow me and have your friends follow me. I think that is the platform that I tend to be using the most to get my thoughts out. And I'm obviously reaching a lot of people because that's where I'm seeing the greatest growth in my followers. And, you know, I'm trying to push back against the mainstream narrative, the mainstream narrative of the markets, the mainstream narrative of economics, of politics. And so the more people that are following me, the more people are gonna get exposed to these ideas, especially if the people who are following me expose their followers to my ideas, who in turn could expose their followers. So you do have these huge network effects that can come out of a platform like Twitter. So if you're not already following me, then make a point after you finish listening to the podcast to follow me there. In fact, follow me everywhere I am. 
on social media and help me spread the word. Because again, I know we're headed for a major, major crisis, not just a financial crisis, but a currency crisis, a sovereign debt crisis. The proportion of this crisis, the damage it's going to deliver to the average American, to the American economy, is going to be far more substantial than anything we've experienced through COVID or through the 2008 financial crisis dot-com bubble implosion, this is going to be much worse. And of course, the government is going to blame capitalism. It's going to blame the free markets. It's going to blame everybody but itself. The Federal Reserve, same problem. They're not going to look towards themselves. They're not going to accept responsibility. They're not going to acknowledge that we are reaping the whirlwinds of the winds they sowed. So the only way to get the truth out there is if you help me spread it. (music) 